So who is the gospel for? Um, Instinctively, we've sung it, haven't we? We've talked about it. Um, Instinctively, we want to say the gospel is for everyone. Um, However, functionally, you know, in practice, is that what we believe? Um, How about getting the gospel to Muslims? How about getting the gospel into the LGBT community? Uh, how about getting the gospel to those who practice the occult? How about those with severe learning difficulties? Or, or actually any, other num- any number of other kind of groups, specific groups of people where we may wonder, is, is the gospel really for, for, for these people? I mean, so far in Acts, of course, we've, we've seen the gospel, haven't we, penetrating Jewish and pagan cultures. We, we know it's for them. City and small town cultures, we, we know it's for them and so on. But what about when it comes to specific groups of people is the gospel really for everyone and and if it is for for them too for this group too then how do I go about reaching them with the gospel because I'm really not sure where to start um well we're going to do a kind of bonus couple of weeks (laughs) sort of extending our studies a little bit outside of Europe but extending our studies in in Acts to see what happens when the gospel comes to Ephesus um this is this is Paul's homeward journey from his uh, his a five-city tour, if you like. Uh, we reminded ourselves the last time, didn't we, that the, the book of Acts is the account of how the early church, the first disciples, began to work out the mission that they'd been given from the, the risen Lord Jesus, the mission to, to take the gospel out to the, the ends of the earth. Um, uh, we've observed, too, uh, of course, along the way, that Paul has chosen to be intentional. He's chosen to be purposeful. He's, he's chosen, we might even say, to be strategic, about, about how he does that uh, as he's toured these, these European cities in, in chapter 16 to 18. Um, I've, I've argued, um, actually against some others, but I've argued that he's not intentionally um, uh, seeking to reach the influencers of his day, the kind of the, you know, preaching to the cultural elites in the hope that the gospel might trickle down to the rest. I don't think that's what's going on uh, in those chapters, but rather he's simply gone to where people are. He's, he's gone to, uh, to adjacent regions with the intention of establishing a local church in a given region um, from where the gospel can grow and spread out. Um, and today, we find him kind of on the way home from his five-city tour of Europe, um, such that the action now shifts to the city of Ephesus. And I, I think there are three, you probably see them in the passage quite readily, there are three kind of movements if, if you like, in the passage, which I've called home from Ephesus. That's kind of the first movement. Um, there's, a, there's a movement there about others in Ephesus and, and then one about Paul coming back to Ephesus. And it's a bit of an unusual passage, um, I think, but I hope it'll be helpful. Um, and, it, and I think that what we see here is the gospel coming to a very unique and specific group of people. And, and that is Um, disciples of John the Baptist. Um, uh, Of course, right through Acts, we've seen the gospel coming to to many different groups of people. But how will the gospel fare when it comes to this particularly unique group of people, special group of people? How how does uh, Paul reach them with the gospel? That's that's what we we find out in this passage, I think. So have a look firstly at at Paul's trip home to Ephesus. This is in verses uh, 18 to 23. Of, um, of chapter 18. And let me also put up kind of a slide here. There, that's the slide that I, I showed last week, just so that we can kind of follow his movements. You see he's, he's, done, his, he's done his five-city tour. 
Um, he's done his five-city tour around here, and he's now heading from Corinth uh, back to Ephesus here. So I'll leave that up for us. So he's been in Corinth for a while. Um, he makes plans to, to head home to, to Syria, to uh, Antioch, which is where he started from uh, over here. Um, uh, and he's taking Priscilla and Aquila uh, with him. But his first stop in, in verse 18 is to, is to break the journey at Sencrea. Sencrea is just kind of, it's almost right next door to Corinth. It's, it's a kind of port uh, where he was going. But he, he, he breaks his journey at Sencrea, just a few miles up the road, to get a haircut. Did, did you notice that? Right, to get a haircut. And if you're anything like me, you're thinking, well, why, why did he need to break his journey for a haircut? You know, what, what's all that about? Did, did Priscilla perhaps tell him that he'd have to smarten himself up before he went back to his home church? He just got a bit scruffy. You know, is that, is that what it was all about? And anyway, didn't they have barber shops in Corinth? I mean, why, why has he done that? But I, we can know, can't we? We can be assured that when a Bible writer bothers to record, even a small detail, that there's a, there's a good reason for it, even a haircut. And, and if you look in verse 18, you can see the reason for this haircut is that Paul was under a vow, so this is, in all probability, I think, fulfilling a Nazarite vow. You can read about those in the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 6, if you'd like to. Um, but we're not really told very much about it at all, really, just, just that. We don't know exactly what vow he'd taken. We know that it wasn't uncommon for a Jew uh, to, to take vows like that. It would have been a, um, a voluntary commitment of some kind, probably to undertake a, a particular service for the Lord or a particular devotion to the Lord for a, for a set period of time probably as an act of thanksgiving to God. And, and, and such a, a promise, a, a vow, would often be marked by the person not cutting their hair during that period of time so that people around uh, knew what they were doing. So it was like a, a public declaration, if you like, of their thanksgiving to God um, or their devotion to God. And, and so Paul's haircut here, it's, it's probably to mark the end of the period of a Nazarite vow that he's taken. And the point of recording it uh, here, I, I, I guess, is to show that Paul's observing a voluntary Old Testament practice, something that formed part of the law, um, but that he evidently didn't consider that that was somehow in conflict with his new status in Christ, um, which actually makes him the opposite of what he's just been accused of in Corinth. Doesn't it? Do you remember last week, back in verse 13, he'd been accused by the Jews, hadn't he, of being a lawbreaker? somebody who was undermining the, the, the Jewish law. But what we see here is him practicing the law, and, and not simply over something that the law mandated, but actually over something that was voluntary. I think it's an example of, of what he later wrote to the Corinthians about. Do you, do you remember uh, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 20, to the Jews I became as a Jew to win the Jews? To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. In other words, in Christ, he's, he's been set free from the law. He doesn't need um, all the ceremonial and sacrificial uh, kind of elements of, of the law in order to be, to be justified. But that sets him free to still observe some of them, and, and especially if that will help him to get a hearing for the gospel among the Jews. So he gets a haircut. Uh, and then he continues his, his, uh, his homeward journey. He stops briefly in Ephesus uh, on the way back um, uh, to drop off Priscilla and Aquila there. Look in verse uh, 19. Um, and although he does take the opportunity to share the gospel in the synagogue, he seems to get a better uh, a reception uh, uh, than he did in, than he did in uh, Corinth, he doesn't at this stage 
accept their invitation to stay longer. He's, he's anxious to get home to, to Antioch, but he, he kind of indicates his return in verse 20. To re, he indicates his intention to return if God wills. Uh, and so then he continues his homeward journey. He travels via the port of Caesarea, uh, in Palestine, where he greets the church in verse 22. I, I think that might suggest a quick visit to Jerusalem as well, which is just up the road. Um, and, and then he goes swiftly to Antioch, verse 23, where he spent some time. So it's worth noting there, I think, in passing, that Jerusalem was no longer his home. Um, he, he might have greeted them briefly, but, but Antioch is clearly his home now. That's been the base for his missionary operations, that's where he returns to and, and spends time there uh, at the end of his, his second uh, missionary journey. Um, and then presumably having rested there for a while, um, uh, probably brought some encouragement to the home church. He then leaves Antioch for Galatia and, and Phrygia. You might remember those places because that's where his first missionary journey took him back in chapter 13 with Barnabas and, and John Mark. Do you remember and, and notice that he's going back there again. Um, so not only did he preach his way through there before and plant churches in, in chapter 13, but he's already gone back there once in chapter 14, and he's going back there again here in chapter 18 in order, verse 23, to strengthen the disciples. Uh, sorry, strengthen the, 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 yeah, strengthen the disciples. So there's, a, there's another example there, isn't there? of the fact that Paul's concern, and you see this right through Acts, I think, Paul's concern is not only to plant new churches, but it's to strengthen existing churches. Um, I think that's a key concern in Acts, actually, and, and certainly one that ought to drive us as well, I think, to be concerned not only to plant new churches, but to strengthen existing churches where we can. Um, wouldn't it be great, you know, if, if here on the island... We could do some things that would play a small part in encouraging and strengthening uh, other churches too. Uh, other churches who are holding out the gospel, you know, in faithfulness to the scriptures in, in, in some tricky times. Um, well, the rest of the passage is concerned, is centered on, on Ephesus, so that's where we're going to kind of concentrate our efforts. So let's have a look at the second movement in the passage. This is verses 24 to 28, which is all about the ministry of others in Ephesus. You see, I, I think it's quite easy to miss or, or ignore the fact that although the book of Acts kind of concentrates on the work of Paul, I, I guess, as the, the missionary to the Gentiles, nevertheless, there is more to the spread of the gospel than just the apostle Paul. Um, in fact, there's many places uh, uh, in the world where the gospel has reached where we just don't know how it got there. Um, so, so although Paul was kind of heading the charge, uh, if, if you like, in the, in the outward spread of the gospel into the, the Gentile world, there were actually many others, presumably working independently of Paul, that the book of Acts simply doesn't tell us about. But one thing is for sure, Paul and his colleagues, you know, Barnabas and Silas and so on, that they weren't doing it all by themselves. And, and two of, of those that we do see in Acts are, of course, the, the Jewish tent makers. We met them last week, uh, Priscilla and, and Aquila, um, uh, people who'd been thrown out of Rome by the emperor, but whom God had brought to Corinth to be a vital support to, to Paul there. We, we don't really know very much about them. We haven't got a clue how and where they came to faith, for example. All we know is that having been a help to Paul in Corinth for a while, they then accompanied Paul on his journey home as far as Ephesus, where Paul left them, look, verse 19, 
to keep ministering the gospel there after he'd gone on to Antioch. And, and so it was they who were the ones to correct and teach another key worker uh, in the mission to the Gentiles, which is uh, the great preacher Apollos. Um, now, now we're told, look in verse 24, he was also a Jew, um, although significantly, look, he came from Alexandria, that's in sort of northern Egypt, where there was a huge Jewish settlement, actually, in Alexandria. There were more Christians, more Jews in Alexandria at the time than there were in Jerusalem. It was a huge uh, settlement. But uh, although there was a huge Jewish settlement, the prevailing culture was Greek, of course, rather than, than Hebrew. So he's not a country boy, you know, from the villages of, of Galilee, uh, as it were. He's, a, he's an educated, he's an eloquent Jew, he's a good orator, he's brought up in Greek culture. Alexandria was sort of second biggest uh, city in the Roman Empire at the time. Um, but, but, but he's still a man, verse 25, competent in the scriptures, so he knew his Old Testament. And he'd also been instructed in the way of the Lord and spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, verse 25. So, so Apollos is He's cultured, he's, he's educated, he's a gifted communicator, he's grounded in the scriptures, he's come to believe in Jesus, um, he's keen, he's passionate, uh, not only to grow in his faith, but to share it accurately uh, with others, which I guess is quite a find, isn't it? But, but notice there's a problem, verse 25. He, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. And you're thinking, well, how can you speak and teach accurately the things of Jesus when you know only the baptism of John? Um, let's fill in a bit of background then. John the Baptist, of course, we, we know him, don't we? He was the prophet sent by God to prepare the people for the coming of Jesus. And, and as he did that, he, he achieved a kind of uh, local celebrity status, I, I, I suppose. Pe people knew about him right across the nation. Huge crowds would come and hear him speak. News of this spread even up to Herod's palace, where, where of course, he was eventually imprisoned and, and executed. So, so John, he was well-known and, and well-loved uh, in, in Israel, and his preaching put him at the center of really a national movement. This, this was a man that the people recognized was sent by God to prepare them for the coming of the Messiah, the Lord. That's what he was preaching, and the crowds were flocking to hear him. Uh, and they were responding to his call to repent and be baptized in preparation for the coming of God's kingdom and God's king. So, so what all that meant was that in Jerusalem, alongside the many other groups of Jews that were around, the Pharisees and Sadducees and Essenes and Zealots and you know, people following various other rabbis and so on, was this new group who were the disciples of John the Baptist. Now, of course, the disciples of John didn't last very long <laughs> after Jesus' ministry started, but partly because John was executed, but mainly because John was pointing people to Jesus, wasn't he? And so most of John's disciples, though not everyone, most of John's disciples eventually became Jesus' disciples. So there was this kind of overlap period, if you like, at the time when there, were, uh, when there were disciples of Jesus, but there were also still some remaining disciples of John. And, and here in Apollos, there appears to be a man who has been a disciple of John. He's, he's responded to John's call to repent and be baptized. 
um, and who had also understood quite correctly that the one John was pointing to as the coming Messiah was in fact Jesus. So, so he's a man uh, convinced from the, the Old Testament scriptures and convinced from the testimony of John that Jesus is the Christ. And, and Luke stresses here that what Apollos knew about this was accurate. But although it was accurate, we discover that it was incomplete. <laughs> such that Priscilla and Aquila needed to, uh, verse 26, explain the way of God more accurately to him. So although he was um, accurately able to speak in the synagogue of Jesus as the promised Messiah, there were loads of gaps in his understanding. If, if he only knew what John knew, do, do, do you see? So crucially, of course, he wouldn't have known about the death and resurrection of Jesus. Or, or, or of the Holy Spirit having been poured out at Pentecost. So, so it's not that what he did know was wrong. It was just that it was incomplete. That there were loads of gaps in his understanding such that what he did know was accurate, but he didn't know enough. In, in other words, he, he only knew John's message about Jesus. He didn't know Jesus' message about Jesus. So Priscilla and Aquila teach him. They, they fill in the gaps in his understanding. They teach him the way of the Lord more accurately. It's interesting, there's, um, there's no mention of Paul ever having met Apollos. Uh, verse 27 tells us that he, he left Ephesus for Achaia and Corinth before Paul got back there. Um, but it, it seems that he was well received by the church in Corinth. He was able to powerfully refute the Jews in, in public, verse 28, showing from the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And you can just imagine him doing that, actually, can't you? What a, what a force for the gospel this, this sort of educated, well-versed, powerful preacher uh, must have been now that he had the full message of the Lord Jesus. He's, he's a Jew who's now really well-equipped, isn't he, to take the gospel to the, the Jews in the synagogues. So there's lots of unknowns, I think, in, in those verses. What exactly did he know or not know about Jesus before? Did, did that make him a Christian before Priscilla and Aquila got hold of him or, or only afterwards? You know, there's loads we don't really know here. But, but it seems to me that in Apollos, you see a great example of how a devout Jew of his day should have been responding. See, the people of Israel were God's people, which meant they should have been like Apollos and become disciples of John the Baptist when he came along. Because, of course, John was the prophet sent by God to prepare his people for their Messiah to come. So every Jew should have responded to John's message to repent and believe the gospel and, and to be baptized and to eagerly await the coming kingdom of God in the person of his Messiah. So the fact that Apollos, you know, a Jew well-versed in the scriptures, was a disciple of John, so, so was preaching what he knew, well, that's exactly what Jews of the time should have been doing, isn't it? You know, any true Jew of the time should have been a disciple of John like Apollos was, and then on hearing the message of Jesus should have become disciples of Jesus. And of course, in the case of Apollos, you know, once Priscilla and Aquila had filled in the gaps, well, he was able to do just that, and he did. You see, to, 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 to be a Jew was to be one of God's people, and so to be a true Jew was to obey what God said, his word, 
as he spoke through his prophets whom he sent. And that's what Apollos was doing, wasn't he? He believed and preached his Old Testament. He was competent in the scriptures. And then through John, he'd been instructed in the way of the Lord. In other words, John, as as God's prophet, had taught him more of God's word, such that when he heard it and saw that it was consistent with his Old Testament scriptures, well, he believed it and he taught it accurately. And so became a disciple of John. And then when Priscilla and Aquila were able to fill in the gaps to him so that now he knew more of God's word through the, the teachings of Jesus, well, he believed and he proclaimed that as well. You see, although Apollos was you know, somewhat unusual in, in that he lived in this kind of overlap period between John and Jesus, yet I think what we see in Apollos is something that marks out all of God's people, isn't it? Today as well which is that God's people are people who listen to God's word and then respond in obedience, going where God's word takes them, doing what God's word teaches. And although Apollos is somewhat uh, uh, an unusual case, that is what he does, isn't it? He responds to God's word with obedience as increasingly that word is explained to him. And friend, could I, could I just say that if you're here this morning and wondering, well, how do I become one of God's people? Friend, it's basically the same. We listen to God's word in the Bible as it points us to the person and work of Jesus, his, his death and resurrection, his rescue of us from our sin uh, and the new life that he gives us in him. And we respond to God's word in obedience, turning away from our sin, placing our trust in him as our rescuer and our king. Come and have a chat with me if you'd like to know some more about that. And and friends, this this encounter with one disciple of John the Baptist kind of prepares us for chapter 19 and a further encounter with the disciples of John. So here's the third movement in the passage, which is Paul coming back to Ephesus. And this is in in verses 1 to 10 uh, of chapter 19. Have a look at verse 1. Uh, And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. So, So Apollos has gone off to Corinth. Paul has returned from Antioch to Ephesus, where he finds some disciples. And and notice at this stage, he, he doesn't tell us whose disciples they were. Okay, so we, we mustn't assume that these are Christians, di- disciples of Jesus, ju- just that they're disciples or students of someone. That they're believers, if you like, but believers in what? Believers in whom? Well, we're not told that yet. And yet, actually, you can tell from the question that Paul asks them that he's picked up on the fact that something's missing in them. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And, and their reply obviously confirms his suspicions because they say, no, we haven't even heard there is a Holy Spirit. So these people are believers in that they believe in God and his word, um, but they they hadn't received the Holy Spirit. Indeed, they were completely unaware of the Holy Spirit's coming, his existence. And so you can imagine that Paul is thinking, well, there's definitely something wrong here. You know, how, how can they be Christians without even knowing about the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit? How's that possible? If they're they're believers, if they're disciples, um, what have they been baptized into? 
If, if, they've, if they haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit, what have they been baptized into? If they're believers, who have they, who's been teaching them the gospel? Who's baptized them? Because these guys have only got half the story. Well, look, it all becomes clear when Paul asks the question, verse 3, and it turns out that they'd only received John's baptism. So these were more disciples of John. That's why they hadn't received the Holy Spirit or, or even heard of the, the, the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, his coming at Pentecost. They were disciples of John. It hadn't been taught to them yet. They, they'd only got half the story. <laughs> now, they were, look, men of Israel. They were Jews. And, and as such, they'd been obedient to what God had said in their scriptures. They were also disciples of John. So they'd heard John's call to, to repent of their sin and be baptized because God's Messiah was coming. And they'd done that. But what they hadn't heard about was that this coming Messiah was Jesus. They'd, they'd heard John, they must have heard John say, as he did in Matthew 3.11, you know, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me, who is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to, 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 to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And of course, John was speaking about Jesus here, but these guys didn't know that. They, they, they knew, they believed, as, as John had taught them, that someone was coming, God's Messiah, his Christ. But they hadn't heard, it appears, that Jesus was that person. And, and you can see this, look, in verse 4. Paul said, John baptized with the, the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. You see, that's the crucial bit of teaching that they, they didn't have, that Jesus is the one who was to come. And so as Paul explains that to them, they believe it. As, as the light of God's word comes to them, they've responded by believing it. And that is what God's people do, friends. They're people who believe what God says. And, and the fact that they believe what God says about Jesus, as Paul tells them about Jesus, is, is evidenced by the fact, look, that they're baptized into the name of Jesus, verse 5. And that the Holy Spirit, verse 6, is poured out on them too. So this is like a mini Pentecost going on here, isn't it? It's like Pentecost catches up on them too. Just, just like back in chapter 10, you might remember, as the first Gentiles heard and received the gospel, there was this little mini Pentecost, wasn't there? This echo of Pentecost as they too were enabled to speak in tongues or languages, the praises of God, showing that the gospel was for the Gentiles too. Well, you've got another one of those here, haven't you? As the gospel comes to this rather unusual group of people who have responded to John but never heard about Jesus, you know, people who, who if you like, have, have responded to the first half of the gospel, as, as they've heard the, uh, from John the call to repent for the forgiveness of their sins, but who need to move on into the, the, the full truth of the, the gospel and turn to Christ in trust as, as God's promised saviour and, and king. And, and what we say, see here is that the gospel is for them too, isn't it? As Paul fills in the gaps in their knowledge and they come to believe in Jesus, so God's spirit is poured out on them exactly as it was at Pentecost. And friends, this is exactly what we've seen all the way through the book of Acts, isn't it? That you can't stop the gospel. It just keeps 
spreading into one part of the world after another, into one community after another, into one group after another. That there's, there's no place, there's no people, there's no subculture, there's no section of society, no matter how obscure, that the gospel cannot penetrate. Whether it's Jews in Jerusalem or priests in Jerusalem or Pharisees in Jerusalem or cripples or eunuchs or Samaritans or God-fearers or pagans or philosophers or government officials or intellectuals or slaves or the demon-possessed or Asians or Europeans. Acts gives us example after example of how through the gospel anyone can become a follower of Jesus Christ. And, And in this latest example here, we find that even this rather unique group of people who are disciples of John the Baptist but haven't heard about Jesus yet, well, even they too can become followers of Jesus and receive the spirit of Jesus in exactly the same way as the gospel is explained to them. Do do you see the point? That the, the question that this passage answers is how do you reach someone with the gospel who's responded obediently to John but has never heard about Jesus? How do you do that? Well, you do it, Paul shows, by explaining Jesus. Because the true disciple of John will hear the gospel of Jesus, the one John was pointing to, and say, that is the truth. And so become a disciple of Jesus. That's the message here, isn't it? But how's that relevant to us? Because disciples of John the Baptist don't even exist anymore, really. I think it's relevant to us because it tells us that through the gospel of Jesus, anyone can become a follower of Jesus and receive the spirit of Jesus, no matter who you are. And if you look at the closing verses of this section, you can see that Paul, having having modelled how to reach disciples of John with the gospel... He turns his attention now to the Jews in the synagogue, look, verse 8, where he speaks for three months, speaking boldly, reasoning with them, persuading them, until he gets kicked out again. You remember that pattern? At which point he sets himself up in the hall of Tyrannus, where he carried on his reasoning with the people daily, verse 9, over a two-year period. And as a result of this work, this preaching of Christ from the Scriptures, reasoning and persuading, day after day, week after week, all the residents of Asia, verse 10, that's Asia Minor, kind of modern-day Turkey, heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Which doesn't mean that all of those people came to hear Paul in the hall of Tyrannus, doesn't mean that. It means that as a result of his work there, the gospel grew and spread throughout the region by others. You know, others like Epaphras, for example, who heard the gospel from Paul in Ephesus and then went back up the valley to to his hometown of Colossae and preached the gospel there and planted a church there and then told Paul what he'd done. And so the the letter to the Colossians was written. Do, do, Do you see how it works? Paul had never been to Colossae, but he didn't need to. He just preached the gospel in Ephesus. And and as he chose to do what was strategic or what was best for the gospel, so God ensured that all the residents of Asia Minor heard the word of the Lord. 
And so, friends, I think this is the, the, the central application of these verses. What, what, what the ministries of Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos and Paul are showing us is that no group of people is beyond the reach of the gospel. Whether it's Jews or pagans, whether it's disciples of John the Baptist or anyone else, there's no one beyond its reach as we patiently, faithfully preach the gospel by explaining the Bible. So friend, let's, friends, let's not be afraid to invite people to come and hear it. Let's not be afraid to offer to read a gospel with someone. Let's not be afraid to patiently reason and persuade from the Bible. Because you see, no matter who they are, or what their background is, or from which of society's many subcultures they come, whether they're colleagues at work, or neighbours across the fence, or mums at the school gate, or members of the family, or clients at the food bank, God's word in the hands of God's people and by the power of God's spirit will grow God's church as we tell it to others. So friends, let's do so. (laughs) So that what was said of Asia there might be said of our island as well. And all the residents heard the word of the Lord. Wouldn't that be great? Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you um, this morning for such a glorious salvation that you've given us in the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Thank you that this is the gospel that saved us, if, if we're Christians here this morning. Thank you that this is the gospel that can save us if we're not yet Christians this morning. And so please would you help us to believe it for ourselves and proclaim it to others in the confidence that no one is beyond its reach that it's for young and old, it's for black and white, it's for rich and poor, it's for Muslims and atheists, it's for agnostics and Mormons, it's for gay and straight, it's for all who will turn from their sin and trust in Jesus as Saviour and King. And Father, we pray this, that all the residents of this island may hear the word of the Lord. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.